Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Continuing on in a sermon that I've titled The Fool's Third Visit for reasons that will be very clear. Starting in verse 11, Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored in the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you uh, as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. One main point seems clear here. The foolish, in quotes, Paul, in whom there is no greed or deceit, fears what remaining and unrepentant sin he may encounter at Corinth. So as he looks to Corinth for the third time, the foolish Paul, in whom there is no greed or deceit, fears what remaining and unrepentant sin he may encounter there. Last time we covered part two and three of the fool's speech where Paul boasted in his weakness. He put together this very strong resume of apostolic weakness. Not to be confused with incompetence, not to be confused with whininess, um, but particularly uh, experienced as challenges and suffering that present themselves in the path of what God has called him to do and that requires a trusting reliance on God's power to harness that in order to be strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We're coming out of that section. And so he says there in 11, I've been a fool. There you have it. There you have it. 
You forced my hand. I, 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 honestly, what should have been happening is you should have been commending me. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. This idea of being commended, we've seen it a couple times in the letter. And at the end of the day here, he's saying, listen, instead of playing this ridiculous game, instead of saying that you're the letter written on our heart, you should be commending us. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You should have been the ones commending us. Why is that? Why is that? The second half of verse 11, an astonishing little sentence. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. I'm not at all inferior, which means I am superior in the context at least. Even though I am nothing. The focus away from from self here is just astonishing. Notice the immediate context is going to clarify. He doesn't think that he's an imposter when he says nothing. He doesn't think that he's not uh, has nothing to do with Christ, for example, or that he's not really a minister. But that the reason he is superior is not because of anything that he brings to the table in terms of his own abilities, but rather that Christ's power rests on him. That Christ's power rests on him. Back up with me to verse 9. Again, you have the famous, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's how he can be superior, although he's nothing. So if that's so imagine I'm going to risk, and it is a risk, a, a Marvel illustration here. My understanding is that Bruce Banner is, uh, is Hulk. I think, um, and um, and so as if if you've been living under a rock, Hulk, you know, Bruce Banner turns into this large, green, powerful monster. Um, and there is something that is in him, and I don't remember exactly how it happened, but somehow it happened. There's something that's in him, but it's not natural to him, and that's what makes him super strong. Bruce Banner, the man, is a nerdy scientist. Who is not strong. This is what Paul's saying. I'm nothing. You know why? I'm, ex- I'm nothing, but I'm extremely powerful. You know why? Because there is something inside of me, but nevertheless, it is alien to me that gives me incredible power and strength, and I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles on that account. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying there. And part of the reason uh, uh, that he is. Uh, superior, and they should have been commending, he points to and he uses a very specific phrase. The ESV is trying to help you out with what this means, but it's a very specific phrase in verse 12. The signs of a true apostle, in the Greek is the signs of the apostle. The signs of the apostle. It's a specific phrase. It It refers to a particular class of people, kind of like return of the Jedi. Right? It's two movie references in a row here. Hey, it's the return of the Jedi, not referring to any one particular Jedi, but the class of people that is Jedi or the signs of the Jedi. Using the force, something like that, he's, he's referring to a particular class of people. Okay, and remember, uh, as I mentioned before, there is New Testament, in, within New Testament theology and vocabulary, there is space for this lowercase a apostle. In fact, the preparation committee being sent there to Corinth uh, was we're called, if you remember, 
the, uh, the, the messengers is how the, tr- the ESV translated, but apostles of Christ. Okay, so there's a little case A, but then there's the uppercase A apostle, which apparently, according to Acts chapter 1, they needed to have seen the risen Lord in order to be a witness to him. So we know that. But apparently, how that is demonstrated, how one demonstrated that they are in that particular class is through signs and wonders and mighty works. Signs and wonders and mighty works. These three words appear together in a few different places in the New Testament. It's even language that's used to describe uh, the Exodus, actually. And it refers to a very specific, very obvious, very supernatural work of God's presence and power when you see these things. And Paul is saying... That's what was performed in front of you. And yet, here we are having this conversation. The signs of the true apostle, the signs of the apostle, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and in mighty works. Do you think that you got some second-rate experience? That's what he's saying there in 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? It's not like we went over to Macedonia, you know, and did the real miracles and came here and did like some card tricks or something. You know, we didn't, you didn't get a half experience. You didn't, they, the other churches aren't favored and you were somehow less. You got the full experience. You got a legitimate apostle, a true gospel, a free proclamation of it, signs and wonders, the whole shebang. There's no way and you were less favored. Oh, you know what? There is that one thing. I didn't burden you. I didn't burden you. And his sarcastic ending to the fool's speech is, please forgive me of that. You're right. There was an area where, where it, there was a difference. There was a difference. I didn't, I didn't want to burden you to financially support me at all. I do apologize, subtext, for being so generous and loving that we're going to get to in just a second. And so ends the fool's speech at 12, verse 13. But he continues on. He's going to start wrapping up the letter now as he looks to Corinth. You'll notice in verse 14, he says, here for the third time. If you jump down to chapter 13, verse 1, he says, this is the third time I'm coming. So he is. we have reached a point in the letter where he is steering now and looking towards his impending visit, his third visit there in Corinth. He says, here for the third time, or behold, that's kind of the same word for now for the third time, behold for the third time, has a kind of element of finality to it. I am ready to come to you, and if it's not clear, and I, w- I will not be a burden. If we haven't clarified this yet, this boast is not going to be silence of mine proclaiming this gospel free of charge, particularly so I'm not associated with these super apostles, because we're not on the same team. He's already clarified that in the full speech earlier. We're not on the same team. I will not be a burden to you. And then he uses tender language here. Very, very tender language. He says, I seek not what is yours, but I seek you. I don't, meaning, I'm not seeking your stuff. I'm not seeking your money. I'm not trying to line my pocket. What I want is you, church. That's what he says. What I want is you. 
He says, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says it's backwards to even think about children saving up for their parents. And if you remember back in chapter 11, he said, I betrothed you to one husband. So how has he positioned himself? As a parent, as the father. He's saying it's ridiculous to think that you're supposed to be saving up to help me. It's like, it's the opposite. If anything, it's the opposite. And he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He says, if I love you more, if I love you in this kind of uh, manner, am I somehow going to be loved less? Talking about how absurd of a conclusion that would be. I'm loving you like this, Corinthians. Are you telling me you're going to... That, that, that you're going to love me less because I have a fatherly love for you that doesn't expect things, but I want to be spent for you? Surely that doesn't mean that I receive less love. But then Paul turns, and you're going to notice a little bit of shift in tone right here in verse 16. He turns to address a potential alternate explanation for what's been going on. Here's the alternate explanation. But granting, he's saying, you're granting that I myself did not burden you. I was crafty, you say, and got the better by deceit. Someone says, oh, wait a second. You know what? It is true. It is true that he didn't take money from us, but that doesn't mean he's, he's not getting paid. So what could be happening? What could be happening? There's a back door. That's how he's getting compensated. And if we don't listen carefully to the next two verses and the logic and how they progress, we're going to be lost in the weeds. So I want to walk us through these next two verses. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Did we not take the same steps? So first, he asks a question, hypothetically entertaining one of the ways that he could have received backdoor payment. That is, through his co-workers who had gone to Corinth, and who, unlike him, while they were there, were in fact uh, hosted and compensated and taken care care of. And what he's suggesting is that, you know what they're doing? They're taking back money to Paul. Uh, Paul shows up, says everything's free. And then people are slipping him money when they go back to join the circuit. He's being deceitful. So that's his hypothetical question. But then he zooms in on Titus and the brother. He makes it more concrete. He's saying, I urge Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Most commentators agree this is refers to uh, uh, certainly the earnest brother or the famous one, probably the famous one. I urged them to go. I, Paul, just want to be clear, I, Paul, am the one who sent Titus and this brother. But then he asks, and by the way, this would have been Titus's third trip. You recall that Titus, the earnest brother, and the famous one are the ones who carried this letter to Corinth. So it would have been Titus's third trip there. 
He's a guy they know very well and they esteem very highly. So Paul says, okay, I'm the one who sent Titus. And then everything depends on you understanding this part correctly. The rhetorical question, did Titus take advantage of you? The answer is obviously not. That's how, that's how the whole section works here. The, 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 the rhetorical question is, uh, did Titus take advantage of you? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. That's why he's saying it as an example. This isn't a real question. Did he take advantage of you? Implied answer, no. No, he did not. He says, well, in light of the fact that I am the one who sent him and we work together, then we act in the same spirit. Do we not take the same steps? So here's the, the flow of the logic is this, okay? He's responding to this potential allegation um, that he's receiving backdoor support deceitfully. He said, I'm the one who urged Titus to come to you. You know, just like I do, that Titus didn't take advantage of you, never has. But therefore, since I sent him, we're on the same team. We obviously are acting and have acted in like manner. We've not taken advantage of you. There's nothing to that charge. It's vacuous. It's empty. We are above bar. We are not being compensated deceitfully. And he makes the final kind of transition, but he retains some of the feel of the previous section in 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now, everyone can be honest. If you've been following along in this sermon series, you read verse 19, you think, have you think all along? Because 19 most likely refers back to the whole letter. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? And you might think, uh, yeah, basically, Paul's defending his apostolic uh, ministry. That's exactly what's been going on. But Paul is, being, is trying to be very careful here and saying that while what he has done in this letter certainly includes a defensive apostolic ministry, it has nevertheless not been a defensive project. That's not what he has set out to do. He has set out to build up. So, for example, as, a, as an illustration, you might have seen a, a, a football game or some kind of a sports game um, in which people play offense and defense. Okay, There's a difference between asking a team if they played defense and was it a defensive game? Was it a really defensive struggle uh, where, where the, the, there's very little, everyone just playing it safe, hunkering down? Every, every football team ever has played defense, but that doesn't mean that you play a defensive style of football or that a particular game was defensive. And that's what Paul's saying. Yes, I've, I, I have, there, are, there are defensive elements in here, but that's not what I'm doing. This is for upbuilding. And you might ask, what kind of upbuilding is he doing? Because what he's doing is essentially taking an oath that this is true. Read that with me. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. We've been, I'm, I'm calling the sight of God. I'm calling Christ who is in me to say, we have been speaking for your upbuilding, beloved. How exactly? One theologian says it so well. He said, how have Paul's words, apart from defending himself and his ministry, been for the edification of the Corinthians? In every issue Paul has raised with them throughout this letter, he has given them an undergirding of theological teaching. Whether first, explaining his actions and his movements. Second, describing the new covenant ministry. 
three, appealing for the completion of the collection, or four, admonishing the Corinthians for on the one hand welcoming false apostles and on the other continuing in immorality. At every point in the letter, Paul has provided some theological and pastoral teaching for upbuilding the spiritual and moral lives of the believers. He says, please, please do not misunderstand what this is. This is not one project of defense. I am writing to you for your upbuilding. He says, if you don't understand that, and you think that we're in a power struggle here, there's going to be problems. And he says he's got two fears. He's got two fears here. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. The idea being Paul's going to show up. Not what he wants to see. He's not going to find them as he wants to find them. He's written them. He's instructed them. He's loved them. He's served them. He's going to come. He's not going to find them as he wants to find them. And guess what? He's going to have to take action. He's going to have to take action. Why? Well, because of this list of vices and sins that we see here. Likely that he addressed on the second visit. Likely, but not certainly, some of the things that he already addressed on the second visit. Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He says, if you have not heeded these upbuilding words and you've dismissed them as vain defense, that when I show up, we're going to have to play hardball here. The, the, the time for pleading will be over and the time for taking action will have come. And, and that's not, I promise, that is not the Paul that you want coming to you. He, he continues on, I fear, second fear. He says, I fear that when I come, Again, my God will may, may humble me before you, and I, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Notice the humbling of Paul here has to do with mourning. It has to do with mourning. It's tied to mourning. May, may God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn. His teaching, his ministry, his faithfulness, his miracles is not enough. Enough to cause people to turn back from their immorality, particularly the sins from earlier, which is almost certainly a reference to what he says in his first letter, which is why we read 1 Corinthians 6 as the scripture reading. So you have one set of sins, but then if you, if you look carefully, it says, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He zooms in on these things, and they all address kind of a different facet in the conceptual space of sexual holiness. They all address different facets of the same conceptual space, sexual holiness that has plagued Corinth 
And he says, I've already written you on this. And I'm afraid that it will be time for action. In fact, I'm not fishing there. Look at, we're going to skip forward just to demonstrate this to verse 2 of chapter 13. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. I will not spare them. Now just imagine how humiliating that would in fact be. You are mourning over sin. You are mourning over brokenness. And you come back to the church that you have planted, that you love, that you long for, and no no one's listening to you. You can't get a hearing. People are not repentant of things that you've addressed long ago, perhaps. And it's not like someone had a bad thought. This is immorality that's even happening in the church. He's already told them in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians to when you are gathered together to enact church discipline on this one egregious public case that they seem to be even proud of. So that's what you show up. And instead of, instead of, some, instead of appreciation, instead of thank you, instead of, oh, look at the fruitfulness. Oh, look at what we're, we're multiplying ministry. Oh, you are the true apostle. Wow, the true sign and, signs and wonders. Instead, he's showing up looking at sin that people still haven't repented of and kicking people out. In in twenty first century church planning literature, that would not count as a win. But it's not Paul's church ultimately; it's the church of Jesus Christ. He's he's afraid he may have to mourn, and that God may humble him because of lack of repentance particularly in the realm of sexual holiness. And so the foolish Paul, a man who, who, in whom there is no greed or, or deceit, fears what remaining and unrepentant sin he may find on his, his third trip. As Paul prepares for this trip, and as we kind of hear him even think out loud in one sense, We get a a window into his mind. He's sharing with us his fears, even. What do we see? What do we see here as the kind of, of the passage funnels down? The centrality of holiness and personal purity in life before God. You know what is astonishing? I always like to notice what is not said. So after everything Paul has said, He gets down to right here at the funnel. And he says, here's what I fear. And if what he said wasn't already there, what would I have filled that in with? What could have he said? Certainly was not feared that he was going to get rhetorically outwitted by one of the super apostles, even if they're a better speaker than him. No, that's not it. He certainly is not worried about the tension and conflict that might happen between him and the super apostles. He's not worried about being shown an imposter. He's not worried about when I get there, I may cave to pressure and take your money. That's not it. He's not worried. His fear is not of accusations that he's been defensive or commended himself. I fear that when I show up, you'll say you've been commending yourself. None of those things that he could have said. 
His fear is focused on lack of personal holiness and lack of repentance in the church. Turning from sin. That's that idea of repentance. Not to be confused with merely feeling sorry or feeling guilty. Repentance. Turning away. And this isn't an arbitrary concern of Paul's. Like holiness is just kind of his pet peeve and maybe knowledge is someone else's. No, it's a concern flowing out of the very nature of God himself, brothers and sisters. It's a concern that flows out of the very nature of God himself and the promises we have in the grace of the gospel. So even in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, remember what we read. Since we have these promises. What are these promises? He's already sketched out the gospel And he said, do not receive this in vain. We have a Savior who has died for sin. We have a risen King. Repentance and faith can unite us to this King. He said, since we have these promises, those are the promises. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Causes someone theological nausea, doesn't it? Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Notice the language here, purify ourselves. You say, Pastor, isn't it Christ who purifies us? Yes, in the judicial declarative sense of not guilty. Yes, and in the righteousness that we receive that is not ours. Yes, but you and I have a robust role and a deep responsibility for our own personal holiness. And cultivating that holiness out of a deep sense of the reverence of reverence for God. And what that implies, at least in part, is that when we sin, it's not just that we had a weak moment. Or it's not just that my sinful desire was just too much. That's an easy way out. It is that we do not have a high enough regard for God's holiness and His Word that reveals it. Now imagine if we said that when people asked us why we sinned. Because in that moment, or perhaps now, I I didn't or I don't have enough reverence for God. That's why. Honestly, God's holiness is just a distant thought or an abstract idea, and I paid no mind to it in favor of engaging in a concrete act of sin that pays dividends in that moment. Helps me to feel the way I want to feel right then, even if it hurts my soul and other people. Well, what happens? That would be one. That's a little bit different perspective on why I sin. Because I care more about trinkets than than fearing the Lord. You know, I I, I always give an example to men. um, Certainly they're not the men struggling on the internet. Certainly men are not the only ones who struggle on the internet, but that's the ones I'm usually giving the example to. And um, I always sit down with them and I say, I've got a solution where you will never struggle on the internet again. They always look at me in disbelief. I say, no, 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 I really do. You want to hear it? They always say yes. They always say yes. They want to hear it. And here's a solution. We're going to find somebody, a Christian person on one of these little four hire sites. He'll be a nice guy, sure. And what we can do is we can have them follow you around your entire life so that you're never alone. 
When you're in the bathroom with your cell phone, they'll be watching. They'll be standing right there. And when you're in your bedroom, they'll be watching. And they'll be standing right there. And when you're at your computer, they'll be standing right there. And they said, they'll say, well, that's not realistic. Oh, of course it's not realistic. But let me ask you a question. If we did that, do you think that you'd still be looking at those things on your screen? And the answer every single time with zero exceptions in my ministry career thus far is, well, of course not. But then why do you regard that person's presence and evaluation as more weightier than the presence of God? You've lost a sense of the reverence and and the presence and the power of God. You, You care more about what some random person would think witnessing that. God witnesses that in much more HD much higher definition. Why, why do you regard God's holiness so low and esteem some random person's evaluation so high? To fight sin, we have to esteem God's glory and His holiness and His majesty as He has revealed it in Jesus Christ. And that's where the power comes from. That's where the power comes from. Because if you subtract that out, you are just left with doing better and trying harder. And that doesn't last till Wednesday, brothers and sisters. It doesn't work. You've tried it. It doesn't work. You cannot take the source of transformation, the power for it, and subtract it out and try to just do sanctification on grit. What does it take a boat not tied to the dock to have to do what, what what's required for a boat someone makes one decision to just undo that rope from the dock what has to happen in order for that boat what does the boat have to do or the person in it to end up eventually very far away from the dock now the answer is nothing nothing that's what simply lack of connection Lack of awareness, lack of clinging is all it takes to drift on the waves of sinful flesh. And one day you will look up from the boat that has been unhitched and you will say, how did I get in this kind of space? How on earth am I here? What did I do? And for some people, not all, for some people, the answer to what did I do is you did nothing. And your flesh destroyed you. It's what you didn't do. It's what you didn't revere. It's what you didn't cherish. It's what you didn't glory in. It's how you did not take steps to purify yourself. 2 Corinthians 7.1 And so, so what gives this hope on this mission? Because that sounds really hard. That sounds really hard, what I just sketched. When you pursue holiness. It's like, oh, man. And what gives us the power and what gives us the hope is the forgiving grace of of the gospel that we run to and it washes over our souls time and time and time and time again and never stops washing over our souls. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand this. It's so important. So my mom um, was one of these moms. uh, Well, she's still alive, but back when I was a little kid, she was one of these moms and, and really still is who just absolutely is thrilled by getting a stain out of clothing. Um, it's like one of the delights of her life, it seems. 
Uh, so much so that when she was here last time, I told her I was throwing away in a hat, a hat, a white hat, because it had disgusting sweat stains in it. And she said, give it to me. I said, okay. And she returned it pure white. Seriously. Don't know what she uses. But that's what she did when I was a child, too. Took a lot of effort. Okay, wasn't she just, she didn't just do what I do is try the shout stick and say, well, oh, well, I'll just wear it with a stain or something. Uh, uh, she, she really got after it, sometimes washing it multiple times. <clears throat> but she seemed to always be able to get it out somehow. A stain magician. You know what that did for me? Let me tell you what it did. It did two things. I saw the effort that it take to achieve that. To make that clean. And it did two things for me. It made me not want to intentionally stain my clothes. But it made me not consumed by, the, by fear if I did. Because I knew what would meet that stain on the other side of dirtiness. I knew what it would encounter. And you know what that provides? True freedom. True freedom. Gospel freedom. Holy power. I know what will meet me on the other side of sin. And so I do not want to sin. And yet... I, I, I know that because it will meet me there, I do not have to live in fear. I don't have to live this defensive life where I'm just tiptoeing through the tulips and just trying to live, just consumed by the possibility of possibly messing up. No, you don't have to do that. I know the cost of I know the cost of what it took to achieve what meets me on the backside of sin. And so simultaneously, I want to press towards purity and holiness while resting in the freedom because I know if I sin, I know what meets me there. That's power. That's how it works. That's, that's how it works. Because of the gospel of Christ, personal holiness is, is not an option. It, it is not something you seek to just manage like your weight or something. All right? It flows out of the gospel. Holiness is not an option, but at the same time, despair because of the gospel is not the end game. Holiness is not an option, but despair is not the end game. Because you know what meets you on the other side of sin. And so I close with this. What sin is it that you are perhaps coddling? Making little excuses for. It's not that bad. I'll just keep this between me and God. What do you have buried that you hope no one finds out about? Maybe you're someone who brings a lot of things into the light to buy yourself credibility to hold a few things back. No one would be suspicious because you share so many things. You get some social purchase to reserve some things back in the dark. No one knows the better. And I feel Paul's weakness here exhorting you to holiness in light of the gospel because you cannot, you know, shake or arm wrestle anyone into holiness. All I can do is is hold up this glorious Christ 
a gospel that washes over my soul and your soul over and over and over and over and gives us power, but also takes away fear because of a conquered Savior. And I can say, repent, beloved. And I can say as one of your pastors, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. Because of the forgiveness of sin, flee impurity. Flee sexual immorality, sensuality. Cleanse yourself in the grace of God and run the race set before you in purity. Let's pray. God, we stand sobered by our sinfulness, amazed by the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that our understanding of those two things combined impels a holy life. Lord, it would be such a shame for someone to have heard such exhortation and to continue to hide or coddle sin and make excuses and think that it won't affect anyone else, that it won't get found out. Lord, help us to have the humility to walk in the light. Thank you for bearing our shame and not only our guilt. Would you give us grace and wisdom? Would you help our church in a miraculous and supernatural way? Help us to love one another, but to come alongside one another in that love, encouraging holiness because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we know how sinful we are. We know our thoughts that no one else knows. And we ask that you would please forgive us of our transgressions. That we would take heed lest we fall. And that if we have been someone who's just untied the boat from the dock. I pray, Lord, that if that if that someone is here, that, that you would cause them to say, no, I need I can't do that. I'm going to drift I'm going to end up in the middle and wonder what happened. How did I get to such a place? And so I pray over all of us in this room that we would stay enthralled by Christ. That we would, in the words of 2 Corinthians 3, behold the glory of God and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, please work in your church in ways we cannot even imagine. We ask in the name of Jesus.